The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Trump is impeached forever. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, December 19th, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support throughout the year through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. This goes on his permanent record. Donald John Trump now wears the red letter of impeachment, a badge of shame worn by only two other presidents in our 241-year history. He is now the first and only president to be impeached in his first term. The first paragraph of every item about Trump in every future article and every Wikipedia posting and every history book will include the word impeached. It's a permanent stain on his presidency. It will not wash out. The Trump brand, his businesses, are forever tarnished by the I-word. Every day going forth, Donald Trump will carry that heavy asterisk. He is a marked man. This is his legacy. Now impeached by the House, Trump cannot be pardoned and he can face criminal charges when he leaves office for the crimes outlined in his impeachment. Nixon was only pardoned because he resigned before the House voted on impeachment, and because the documents accompanying the impeachment articles outline specific violations of federal law by the president, he loses his presidential immunity against prosecution once he isn't president anymore. Impeachment by the House cannot be undone, Unlike the bills passed by the House that require agreement from the Senate and the President, a House impeachment is the law. Impeachment sticks, and no other part of government, not the Senate, not even the courts, can tear it asunder. The Senate's Mitch McConnell will try, but House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has something up her sleeve. And that story is still ahead. In eight hours of debate over the articles of impeachment yesterday, Republicans attacked Democrats and the impeachment. What they did not do is offer a substantive defense of the president. Republican Louis Gohmert repeated the false claim that Ukraine meddled in the 2016 election. Devin Nunes cited the Steele dossier, the whistleblower, and what he again called secret hearings, and the Democrats' supposed efforts to acquire nude photos of Trump. Republican Barry Loudermilk argued that Trump's been denied his Sixth Amendment right to face his accusers even though that amendment pertains to criminal prosecutions, not impeachments, which are legislative. Loudermilk claimed Jesus got more due process than has Trump. Pennsylvania Republican Mike Kelly compared the impeachment to the attack on Pearl Harbor, calling it a day that will live in infamy. Democrat Adam Schiff told the House of Trump he tried to cheat and he got caught. Veteran Democrat Steny Hoyer said he had never seen such obvious wrongdoing by a president. One of yesterday's most notable speeches came from California Democrat Barbara Lee, and I quote, The facts are not in dispute. The president abused his power, defied the public's trust, and betrayed his oath of office. He undermined our elections by corruptly soliciting foreign interference in our elections and obstructed Congress every step of the way in an effort to cover it all up. Donald Trump has been and remains a threat to our national security, a clear danger to our democracy, and wholly unfit to serve as president of the United States. End quote. California Democrat Barbara Lee. Now, the night before, protesters had turned out in winter weather to rally for Trump's impeachment outside lawmakers' offices and in public squares in 600 cities from coast to coast. At just before 9 p.m. on Wednesday, December 18, 2019, the House voted to impeach Trump on both Article I, abuse of power, and Article II, obstruction of Congress. Per the Constitution, a president doesn't have to commit a crime to be impeached, and criminal bribery is not mentioned in the two articles of impeachment passed yesterday by the U.S. House of Representatives. But it is mentioned, along with wire fraud, in the 650-page report from the Judiciary Committee, which first approved those articles of impeachment this past Friday. The committee's report accuses Donald John Trump of multiple federal crimes, all of which fall into the abuse of power article of impeachment. It says Trump's call to Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky meets the federal standard for wire fraud. Quoting the report, Although President Trump's actions need not rise to the level of a criminal violation to justify impeachment, his conduct here was criminal. And the report does not leave out the Trump campaign's welcoming of Russian interference in the 2016 election and says he poses a continuing threat if left in office. The judiciary report says that in committing these crimes, Trump 
has betrayed the nation. In muddy water, the lies have it. The more Democrats argued the case against Donald Trump with a calm and stately focus on the facts, the more Republicans argued with anger and whataboutism. Republicans shifted from what about her emails to what about Hunter Biden while ignoring the alleged crimes of the president. Whataboutism is as old as childhood itself. Johnny gets in trouble for lying, so he points out a lie his sister told or didn't tell. It doesn't matter. The idea is to get mom to forget about Johnny's lie or to at least make her think both her children are liars. The old Soviet Union, whose KGB groomed Vladimir Putin, brought whataboutism into world politics. When the Soviets got caught doing something horrendous, they would point to other countries or claim this is how things are always done. Trump didn't invent whataboutism, but he used it mightily when he was caught on tape bragging about grabbing women by their private parts. Before that day was over, the question on most lips was about Hillary's emails instead. Sure, that other thing sounded bad, but Hillary's emails. Whataboutism helped propel Donald Trump into the White House, and although no wrongdoing was found in Hillary's emails, it helped muddy the water around that grabbing comment. It created the illusion of two sets of facts, when in reality, there is only one set of facts. Everything else is, well, you'd have to ask Johnny's sister about that. Or you could look at how congressional Republicans are handling the impeachment of Donald Trump. To date, Republicans have brought no facts to refute the charge that Trump used taxpayer dollars to squeeze a foreign government for a political favor, asking a foreign government to investigate a fellow American instead of using the domestic means at his disposal, pressuring an ally that desperately needs money to keep Russia from advancing farther into Europe. Instead of facts to exonerate the president, they brought whataboutism. What about Hunter Biden? What about Joe Biden? What about Hillary in the 2016 election? While it's disturbing that Hunter Biden might have used his name to cash in on his dad's vice presidency, no wrongdoing by either man has been found. Republicans haven't brought any facts about that either or about their claims of Ukrainian collusion with Clinton in the 2016 election. No facts, just a little something to muddy the water. Meanwhile, little notice is paid to the benefits accrued by Jared Kushner and Ivanka, Eric, and Donald Trump Jr., What about Hunter Biden, Republicans ask instead. And by that time, the thing the president did is watered down and doesn't seem quite so bad, even though it's a betrayal the founding fathers feared above all others. And the water is muddied by off-topic questions designed to distract and confuse and and name-calling. Trump calling the nonpartisan career diplomats who testified against him human scum. It's a tactic that works. Ask Johnny's sister or Vladimir Putin or ask Donald Trump and congressional Republicans. Instead of using the FBI or any of our intelligence agencies to investigate his conspiracy theories that just happened to match Vladimir Putin's, Trump puts his trust in personal lawyer Rudy Giuliani, who doesn't even hold a position in our government. He tells the public his call to Ukraine's president was perfect. It was not. And Trump has other tools at his disposal to use instead of the FBI and U.S. intelligence, tools that were not available to any of the other U.S. presidents who faced impeachment. Besides his hand-picked attorney general, Trump has social media and Fox News instead of finding and presenting facts to throw mud into the water to try to make things less clear. During Friday's brief hearing for the House Judiciary Committee to vote on two articles of impeachment, a watch party was underway. Facebook launched its watch party service last summer, and in this impeachment, they've been a place for Trump supporters to gather. The Washington Post's Isaac Stanley Becker joined one such watch party during Friday's vote, part of an audience of 75,000 people watching the Fox News coverage live-streamed and commenting on it as it went. The name of the watch party? The Trump deplorables. The Post writer watched as Trump supporters argued it was the Democrats who should be impeached or at least arrested. They accused the witnesses of protecting Joe Biden. Conspiracy theories and racist anger were, at that same hour, popping up on the live streams of the hearing on YouTube. They talked about their former FBI agents, Peter Strzok, their imagined deep state conspiracy, and the Jews they believe are behind it all. Trump's Make America Great Again, MAGA, kept turning up in all caps, along with an invitation for Hillary Clinton to, quote, suicide herself. 
The facts of the case against Trump did not matter in these watch parties. There was no talk there about the facts. What about the Bidens, they asked. What about Peter Strzok? What about the Jews? What about ism? We saw this day coming from the 2016 Trump campaign itself, from the day he took his oath of office when his administration told reporters of a record turnout for Trump's inauguration when overhead photography shows it wasn't. Since then, Trump himself has made well over 15,000 false or misleading statements. But the most dangerous among them is his declaration that Article 2 of the Constitution gives him the power to do anything he wants. It doesn't, but his followers did believe all his other claims. Former world chess champion Garry Kasparov, who's also a Russian dissident, has seen this playbook before. As he told CNN's Anderson Cooper last week, they know that if they can get people exhausted, they exhaust critical thinking. He continued, I always called Putin a merchant of doubt, but now, seeing what's happening in America, Republicans managed to turn the political process into this alternative reality. It's like, said Kasparov, a post-truth world. In muddy waters, the lies have it. We are worse off for it, but more people get their news from Facebook now, where the waters are much muddier than in our most honored newspapers. Even in their various Internet forms, newspapers have largely been eclipsed by Facebook, which is a real shame since newspapers are where most of the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists are. And now, for what it's worth, the editorial boards of more than a dozen of our top papers have called for the impeachment of Donald Trump and, in nearly all cases, his removal from office. The New York Times kept the headline simple, Impeach, it said. The Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Los Angeles Times, and USA Today. Until recently began the USA Today piece, the LA Times had also held off for months, but now says, quote, we've seen enough but also the Orlando Sentinel. And now, from an even more conservative part of Florida, the Tampa Bay Times, which began sheepishly with the words, with reluctance. In the upper Midwest, Chicago and Detroit, the big papers wrote, they are against impeachment, but okay with censuring Trump. Too much hearsay, they argue. A number of heavy hitter newspapers have yet to weigh in. The Arizona Republic, the Cincinnati Inquirer, the Dallas Morning News, and the Houston Chronicle. Calling for Trump's head, meanwhile, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the San Francisco Chronicle. The Rupert Murdoch-controlled editorial board of the Wall Street Journal takes a different view, saying the case against Trump is weak and that the charge of abuse of power is too vague, accusing Democrats of lowering the bar for impeachment. Besides, says the journal, Trump's not even accused of a crime. He is. The Philadelphia Inquirer wrote that Trump has severely disrespected his office and the Constitution and that were he to be impeached and voted out, quote, it's not hard to imagine he would insist the process was invalid and refuse to go. Such an act of tyranny is what the Constitution was created to protect against. The Inquirer editorial concludes, that is why this impeachment process is urgent and should move forward without delay. The Orlando Sentinel took off the gloves, saying it's never been disputed that Trump did something wrong. Of course he did, writes the board, adding, the president of the United States got on the phone and asked the leader of a foreign power to investigate a domestic political opponent. Only the most cynical partisan would think that's okay, say the editors, adding, the question is whether he ought to be impeached for it. And the answer is yes, end quote. If... No one listens to historians or legal scholars anymore. Will there be historians to record this? More than 700 scholars of history and the law signed an open letter urging the House of Representatives to do what it did yesterday. Their letter says the president must be impeached, calling his conduct a clear and present danger to the Constitution. But these are just historians and law professors. What do they know? Nobody listens to them. Perhaps few will hear and none will care that these 700 scholars wrote that his attempts to justify obstruction on the grounds that the executive enjoys absolute immunity, if tolerated, would turn the president into an elected monarch above the law. Also signing the letter, award-winning documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. The letter concludes, if President Trump's misconduct does not rise to the level of impeachment, then virtually nothing does. 
The full U.S. House of Representatives yesterday voted to make Donald Trump just the third president in over 200 years to be impeached. While Republicans unanimously voted no, Democrats were less divided than expected. Only three of them did. Starting on Monday, one by one, moderate Democrats who had not taken a stand on impeachment finally did, and some who were thought to possibly vote against impeachment came out for it instead. These are the moderate Democrats who got elected in swing districts, even districts that went soundly for Donald Trump. Republicans were hoping that some of these Democrats might defect their party and oppose impeachment. The greater number of moderate Democrats opposing impeachment, the more extremist the rest of the Democrats look. Republicans encouraged moderate Democrats to defect, but it didn't work. Among those risking their young political careers to do what they believe is right is Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, a Democrat and former CIA officer who got elected in the part of Virginia that went solidly for Trump. To protect her new job as a freshman lawmaker, Spanberger wouldn't take a stand until Monday when she said, the president's actions violate his oath of office, endanger our national security, and betray the public trust. Fellow CIA alumnus Alyssa Slotkin was cheered and booed by her constituents at a town hall meeting when she came out for impeachment this week. I can hear this is a very controversial decision, she told her Michigan crowd, adding, All I can ask is that while we may not agree, I hope you believe me when I tell you I made this decision out of principle. Protesters held signs, including, Impeach Slotkin, keep Trump. Air Force veteran Chrissy Houlihan of Pennsylvania said, I grieve for our nation, but I cannot let history mark the behavior of our president as anything other than an unacceptable violation of his oath of office. A former Navy commander who's also a freshman in Congress has also put her new political career on the line, as have several others. Congressman Ben McAdams of Utah and Joe Cunningham of South Carolina were among the Democrats expected to vote against impeachment. Monday, they came out in favor of impeachment, as did New Jersey Congressman Andy Kim. Minority leader Chuck Schumer, meanwhile, is taking aim at a list of moderate Republicans. Also Monday, Rudy Giuliani told The New Yorker he wanted to get U.S. Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, quote, out of the way so he could pursue his investigation of the Bidens. Giuliani told the magazine he had told Trump a couple of times that Yovanovitch had made his investigation more difficult. Within weeks, Yovanovitch was gone, out of the way. Trump's lawyer was implicating his own client in the alleged bribery scheme by saying this to the New Yorker. He said Trump was very supportive of his work in Ukraine. Giuliani's just back from Ukraine, where he was gathering more fodder for his conspiracy theory, telling Trump he'd returned with a lot. Quoting Giuliani, we're on the same page. Trump called Rudy just as Giuliani's plane was touching down in Washington after his latest trip to Ukraine. Trump asked, what did you get? According to Giuliani, who says he promised Trump a 20-page report. The president and his personal lawyer appear to be continuing to carry out the crimes they are already accused of committing, the same crime for which Trump is now impeached. Hints, allegations, and almost nothing left unsaid were among the lowlights of the debate last Thursday leading up to Friday's impeachment vote in the House Judiciary Committee. Hunter Biden's drug problem, a Republican congressman's DUI arrest, and of course, Stormy Daniels. Addressing his esteemed colleagues as you guys, jacketless Republican Jim Jordan accused Democrats of not respecting the 63 million people who voted for this guy, which is how he now refers to the president, this guy. They all agreed with Ohio Republican Steve Shabbat, who called the impeachment the most tragic mockery of justice in the history of this nation. They called an abuse of power charge vague. The debate was fierce and went on for nearly 14 hours last Thursday, debating several amendments from Republicans to strike some or all of the language in the articles of impeachment and to add one about the Bidens. With at least one exception, congressional Republicans shifted their argument from the president's done nothing wrong to nothing worthy of impeachment. There was an extended, serious debate about what is or isn't impeachable. Washington State Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal had a message for Republicans, quote, Forget about President Trump. Is any one of my colleagues willing to say that it is ever okay for a president of the United States of America to invite foreign interference into our elections? Not a single one of you, she added, has said that so far. 
Trump, meanwhile, fired off a new record number of tweets, eclipsing the record he had set just four days earlier. The vote the next morning was quick. The hearing was over in 10 minutes, with the articles passed by the Democratic majority, every Republican likewise, voting no. But the big news, a week ago tonight, came from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, whose authority allows him to set most of the rules for next month's impeachment trial. It was a week ago tonight that McConnell said on Sean Hannity's show, quote, I'm going to take my cues from the president's lawyers. McConnell had, in fact, already met with the president's White House counsel to constantly coordinate everything on the trial and Trump's defense. Everything I do during this, said McConnell, I'm coordinating with the White House counsel. There will be no difference between the president's position and our position as to how we handle this, said McConnell. Democratic Congresswoman Val Demings of Florida, who serves on the Judiciary Committee, may be one of the House managers during the impeachment trial in the Senate, if it gets there. She thinks Senator McConnell, based on what he's said, should now have to recuse himself from taking part in that trial. No court in the country, she insisted, would allow a member of the jury to also serve as the accused defense attorney. And then the punch. The moment Senator McConnell takes the oath of impartiality required by the Constitution, Deming said, he will be in violation of that oath. That oath reads, I solemnly swear or affirm that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of President Donald John Trump, now pending, I will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws, so help me God. Some Republican senators have refused to comment, saying they want to be impartial jurors. Not their majority leader, though. I'm going to take my cues from the president's lawyers, says McConnell. Whatever they hash out will ultimately be presented to Trump for his approval. Trump has said he'll go along with whatever Senate Republicans decide. But Trump would also like to call Hunter Biden to testify and Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi and the whistleblower. McConnell would like to keep the trial short and stately, worried that testimony will not work in Trump's favor. It appears McConnell will prevail over Trump on this. McConnell knows a trial that is either too short or too long could work against Republicans in November. Some Republicans hanging onto their jobs by a thread would fall, including Susan Collins of Maine and Cory Gardner of Colorado. But Republican Judiciary Committee member Louis Gohmert's on Trump's side saying the country needs to hear what a farce this was. They really need to bring up witnesses. They, he said, are the chance to clean this mess up. Besides, says McConnell, it was done during the Clinton impeachment as well. Democrats in the Senate were coordinating their strategy. But the other guys, what about them? House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler called McConnell's unity with a separate branch of government and a violation of that impeachment oath a subversion of the Constitution. On Sunday night, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer asked McConnell to subpoena four people House prosecutors would like to question in the Senate trial. These House prosecutors, or House managers as they're called, want to hear from White House Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and his senior advisor Robert Blair, former National Security Advisor Michael Bolton, along with the top official at the Budget Office who can tell how the Ukraine money was withheld. Schumer wants eight hours of testimony from each of those four witnesses. He says this short witness list would allow the Senate trial both to be quick and fair. In Schumer's words, it must also pass the fairness test with the American people. The top Senate Democrat is also proposing that Justice Roberts and the senators be sworn in for the trial on Tuesday, January 7th, and that presentations begin two days later on Thursday, January 9th. Schumer wants the House impeachment managers and Trump's defense team to each get 24 hours to make their case and to give the senators 16 hours to debate. There would be six hours for closing arguments and 24 hours for deliberation, just like in the Clinton impeachment. On Tuesday, McConnell rejected Schumer's entire request and scolded him for laying out terms before closed-door negotiations between them could take place. Schumer responded, Why is the leader, why is the president so afraid to have these witnesses come testify? He accused Republicans of being part of a cover-up. McConnell has said he doesn't want witnesses because he believes that will turn the Senate trial into a circus. His Senate will vote on accepting or rejecting the witnesses, either one by one or as a group. The vote could be close, 
McConnell needs 51 votes to beat down any such motion. His Senate majority totals 53 votes, but there are as many as seven moderate Republicans on whom he cannot depend. And if three or more Republicans go their own ways, McConnell momentarily loses his majority. Senator Schumer's presented his proposal to McConnell in a way that moderate Republicans can accept and respect. Schumer is playing to those seven moderate Republicans because just four of them can give the minority leader the majority of the votes. The seven votes to watch will be cast by Susan Collins of Maine, Cory Gardner of Colorado, Tennessee's Lamar Alexander, Senator Mike Enzi of Wyoming, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Utah's Mitt Romney, and Pat Roberts of Kansas. Analysts say every move Schumer makes going forward will be aimed at winning over these crucial, vulnerable Republicans. But Nancy Pelosi appears to have a plan, a plan to get McConnell to reconsider the decision he's made against the will of the American people to keep Trump's top aides from testifying. The rules say Pelosi has to send the now-approved articles of impeachment to the Senate for trial. But there is no rule that says when she has to send it. She says she needs some time now to consider things, like who will be the House impeachment managers in that Senate trial. But her delay also serves as leverage to persuade Mitch McConnell to reconsider his ban on witnesses. There's talk she may hold the articles indefinitely. The Senate cannot dismiss the charges or acquit the president or conduct an unfair trial if it never gets the articles of impeachment. Also Sunday night, a bombshell from the Fox News poll, a bombshell at least for Fox News viewers. The poll found that 54% of Americans want Trump impeached and that 50% want him both impeached and removed from office. The Fox poll found that 53% of us believe Trump has abused his power, while only 38% of us say he has not. Nearly half say he has obstructed justice. Almost half believe he committed bribery in pressing Ukraine to investigate Biden. 60% of us say it's wrong for a president to ask a foreign country for help with his or her campaign. Nearly that many say, despite Republican claims to the contrary, that it is not normal for a president to do such a thing. Just over half think the president has not cooperated with the investigation, and more think Democrats have handled the impeachment fairly than think they have not. By a 16% margin, Americans believe Republicans are defending Trump for politics, not because they believe he's innocent. Putting the impeachment on TV is working for Democrats and against Republicans. The Fox poll also found that nearly one in three Republicans now believes it was inappropriate for Trump to ask for that Biden investigation. About 12% of Republicans believe he has abused power, committed bribery, and obstructed justice. About 10% say he's done at least one of those. These are Republicans. The ABC News poll finds that 12% of Republicans, along with 85% of Democrats and 47% of Independents, want him removed from office. An ABC News poll finds that more than 7 out of 10 Americans, Democrat and Republican, think Trump should let his top aides testify in the Senate trial, and that includes 64% of Republicans. As mentioned earlier, Mitch McConnell's defying the American people by preventing this testimony. And despite Trump's claims of being treated unfairly in the House impeachment hearings, 62% of us from both parties believe he was treated fairly, including 61% of Republicans. There are signs of bipartisanship in these numbers, despite an otherwise sharply divided country. It means there are more persuadable Republicans out there than the numbers would lead us to believe. While that 50% for impeachment and removal may not sound like news to the rest of us, it was to those who live in Trump world. I was stunned by this, said Fox and Friends co-host Brian Kilmeade, adding, I thought things were trending away. Kilmeade was surprised because he'd been hearing Trump say his numbers had gone through the roof, especially with independent voters, especially in the swing states. In truth, support for impeachment has risen 7% among independent voters since October, from 38% to 45%. It's okay, a lot of people get confused this way, believing what Trump says. It's not at all surprising. The latest Washington Post fact-checker count 
as Trump making well over 15,000 false or misleading claims since the day he took office. It's a skill he has built over time. He's only made about 2,000 false statements in his first year in office. Last year, he told about 5,700 additional lies and then nearly doubled that number in the year that isn't quite over yet. Numbers just out this week show that by December 10th, by the time that Trump was 1,055 days into his presidency, he had made 15,413 false and misleading claims. He started averaging about 40 false claims a day once the Ukraine scandal dropped. He's falsely tweeted about the whistleblower more than five dozen times in the past two months. Quoting the Post's fact-checker, the president apparently believes he can weather an impeachment trial through sheer repetition of easily disproven falsehoods. In other words, in muddy water, the lies have it. There was another string of falsehoods in the sternly worded letter that Trump sent Tuesday to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. It was the night before the impeachment vote, and Trump blasted out six pages of frustration and vitriol, warning Democrats they will lose in 2020 because of this impeachment. The letter is all over the road, from his electoral college victory to Joe Biden to the economy to immigration to Adam Schiff and the whistleblower to repeating his false claims about spying on his campaign to the phone call he still claims was perfect. After saying he was filing his grievances for the purpose of history, he got history wrong by saying that this impeachment afforded him less due process than the Salem witch trials. That one got the attention of the mayor of Salem, Massachusetts who pointed out that those trials in the 1600s involved the brutal executions of 19 innocent men and women who were hanged or crushed with rocks after evidence that included people's dreams and claims of sorcery and the supernatural. Learn your history, said the mayor of Salem to the President of the United States. Also, presidents are not entitled to due process in a House impeachment because that's an investigative process, not a trial. The New York Times fact-checkers found nearly 20 false or misleading statements in Trump's bizarre six-page letter that he started writing a week ago. The Washington Post found about two dozen. Many see the letter as proof of a president unhinged. Salon.com's Bob Seska has been watching the impeachment with the rest of us, and he's here now with some additional insights. Bob? Thank you, Buzz, and happy holidays to you. On December 18, 2019, Donald Trump was impeached by the House of Representatives. It's a momentous occasion for the rule of law and the Constitution, guaranteeing that one of Trump's most egregious trespasses against the people and our founding documents will be recorded for posterity. From here on out, the first line of Trump's eventual obituary will include the word impeached. All this alone makes the effort well worth it. One of the aspects of the impeachment that brings me the most delight is Trump's perhaps involuntary guilt spasms in which he makes sure we all know he did exactly what he's being accused of. In fact, this week he released a six-page admission of guilt disguised as self-defense and addressed to Nancy Pelosi. Almost everything he says in that letter are the words of a profoundly guilty man. But while he often telegraphs his guilt, it's important to note that Donald Trump, like any professional criminal, like any mobster, is incapable of actually feeling guilty. In order to do so, he'd have to possess a conscience to feel regretful or responsible for the myriad awful things he's done as president and indeed throughout his twisted life. He has no conscience, no core values beyond self-preservation, a trait shared by most carbon-based life forms, even single-celled organisms. It's the most basic instinct anyone can have, and even in that regard, Trump always makes things worse for Trump. That being said, while he's incapable of experiencing pangs of guilt like a sentient human being, there's one thing he knows for a fact, and it's driven many of his most ridiculous decisions. Trump is terrified. He's panicked. There's no doubt that he's wired for fear. Specifically, he's afraid he's going to be seen for what he really is— an illegitimate president. Even though he'll never confess it, he's well aware that a majority of people here and abroad don't consider him to have been legitimately elected. And they're right. He was propped up by a Russian attack against the United States, tasked with making sure he wins. 
One of, if not the primary reason Trump is president today is because of a Russian military intelligence operation that infiltrated enough American brains via social media and the press to artificially inflate Trump's vote totals. No wonder he's trying it again, this time with Ukraine. He needs it. He can't win without it. Once a cheater cheats, he believes the only way he accomplished anything is because of the cheating. So it never ends. The impeachment, thank goodness, is partly about exposing that nerve, his illegitimacy nerve, and twanging it like a guitar string. Trump continues to cheat in the 2020 election even while he's been impeached for it because, he believes, re-election might provide more legitimacy. But it's the cheating that makes him appear illegitimate, and he knows the House Democrats have nabbed him for it. There's a school of thought that says Trump wanted to be impeached, and I can't think of a dumber hot take about all of this. Does anyone seriously want to be indicted for a series of federal crimes with the potential for other crimes to be exposed in the process? Of course not. Worse, given how only three presidents out of 45 presidencies have been sanctioned this way, it's not an enviable means of accountability. Unless I'm badly mistaken about him, it's not an accomplishment he was ever hoping to include as part of his legacy. He's all about projecting a positive outlook for his leadership to the point of routinely lying about it. And I don't see how impeachment fits into his so much winning marketing scheme. No, Trump is horrified by the impeachment. Make no mistake, we can see the mortal fear printed in all caps on Twitter. In the darkest places of my brain, I seriously hope it's eating him alive. I hope he's thinking about normals everywhere, laughing and pointing at him for being so dumb as to cheat in yet another election, highlighting his weaknesses, and then going on trial in the U.S. Senate to possibly be removed from office for it. Don't let anyone tell you this is going to end up as a net positive for Trump. It's worth noting that the Democrats in the 1998 midterms during the impeachment of Bill Clinton didn't gain any seats in the Senate and only five seats in the House. There's no real precedent for the party of an impeached president to benefit from their guy being impeached. Even in the 2000 election, with the Clinton trial taking place just a few months before primary season heated up, the Republicans, the party that impeached Clinton, ended up winning the presidency, and by 2002 ended up controlling both chambers of Congress again. It's impossible to know whether it'll work out the same way next year, but history tells us the Democrats will be okay. Now, in order to calcify his illegitimacy and to reject Trumpism, Impeachment has to be followed by a major loss for Trump in the election. He has to be seen by history as a one-term faker. It's mandatory. Two terms will grant him at least a patina of historical legitimacy, one that he'll never actually earn but which he could seize anyway. If he gets a second term, even by cheating, he'll likely repeat George W. Bush's insistence after the 2004 vote that he earned political capital and he intends to use it. Political capital and an orgasm of electoral legitimacy held in the dainty hands of Donald Trump ought to be considered a weapon of mass destruction, and we can't allow him to do it. Yes, Trump was impeached. Yes, it was a big fucking deal. But no, we can't get happy. Not yet. There's still an election to win, and the stakes couldn't be more harrowing. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Merry Christmas. Thank you, Bob, and happy holidays to you as well. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. In other impeachment-related news, Trump 2016 campaign manager Rick Gates is going to jail for 45 days and will spend the next three years on probation. He will also pay a $20,000 fine and do 300 hours of community service. Gates was convicted of financial fraud and of lying to investigators. He got a light sentence for these serious crimes by broadly cooperating with investigators. He was extremely helpful to Robert Mueller. It was Gates who brought down his own former business partner, then-campaign chairman Paul Manafort. Gates testified he helped Manafort hide $75 million in foreign bank accounts, money the two of them had made in the years they lobbied on behalf of Ukraine. He's also shared a lot about the Trump campaign. He has shared a lot about Trump's friend, Roger Stone. 
It appears Rick Gates will get to serve his jail time on weekends over the course of that three-year probation. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear why this president thinks he can hide his financial information from congressional committees and or a New York state prosecutor. Actually, the court already knows why Trump thinks he can hide these numbers, namely his lawyer's argument that a president cannot even be investigated, much less charged with a crime. The Constitution gives Congress the power to oversee the executive branch. The Supreme Court has now agreed to rule on one side or the other. Your cynical friend believes that the conservative-led court that now includes two Trump appointees will rule in Trump's favor. Your friend might be wrong. As many as two of the conservatives may vote with the liberals on this. While the Supreme Court has been making conservative rulings lately, it takes the Constitution far more seriously than the other two branches and more seriously than political fights over guns, abortion, immigrants, LGBTQ, and all the rest. It's a gamble for Trump because the court won't take up the question until March and might not rule until as late as June. By then, impeachment could be in Trump's rear view, but he would then be in the middle of a fierce re-election battle. Still, it was Trump who urged the high court to take up the cases. There are three lawsuits, two from the three House committees and another from Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance. He's investigating whether Trump violated campaign finance laws in the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Congress is mainly after Trump's tax returns, which, unlike any other president and other presidential candidates over the past 40 years, Trump has fought hard to keep his hidden from the voters. Both the DA and the House committees are after financial records on Trump, his businesses, and his family. The Supreme Court says it will hear the Trump tax cases. It made the announcement on the same day the House Judiciary Committee approved the Articles of Impeachment. It's history in the making, folks. For the first time in American history, the Supreme Court will examine the behavior of the president. Donald Trump won the swing state of Wisconsin in 2016 by fewer than 23,000 votes. With that in mind, a Wisconsin judge has ordered state officials to kick up to 230,000 people off its voter registration list because they might have moved. Might have moved. Or maybe they didn't. Back in October of this year, the Wisconsin Election Commission sent out letters to hundreds of thousands of voters asking them to respond within 30 days to whether they were still at that address. 60,000 of the letters did come back as undeliverable, but that's nowhere near 230,000. Nearly 17,000 had in fact moved but had already registered at their new address, and not everyone who responded met the deadline. Other Republican-led states, including Georgia, have also conducted voter purges, and they have been so far upheld by the courts, except in Texas, where one purge was stopped with an out-of-court settlement. In Wisconsin, most of the purged voters were in the Milwaukee and Madison areas, meaning mostly Democratic voters, after a push by a right-wing conservative group. We don't normally hear from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISA as it's known, it is, after all, a secret court established in 1978 to quietly process the warrants for surveillance. After a Department of Justice Inspector General report that slammed the FBI for missteps it made in persuading the court to issue warrants for the surveillance of Trump campaign aide Carter Page, who bragged about getting dirt on Clinton from Russia. So the normally quiet FISA court has now also slammed the FBI for being sloppy and less than candid about its justifications for the Carter Page warrants. The Bureau has been given until January 10th to respond to the court on how it plans to address these mistakes. FBI Director Chris Wray has already proposed about 40 changes in the Bureau policy to make sure the mistakes in the Russia probe don't happen again. This court order from FISA will ensure that those changes are made. Republicans, including Lindsey Graham, meanwhile, are calling for reforms in the FISA court, something the ACLU has long demanded to protect the rights of all Americans. And it's important to note that the DOJ's inspector general found no evidence of political bias in the FBI or its Russia probe, contradicting the claims of the president and many Republicans. TV's Chris Wallace gave a speech the other night that would not set well with his Fox News Channel viewers. He blasted Donald Trump for launching the most direct attack in American history 
on the free press. It was the right audience, a gathering at the museum in Washington to celebrate the First Amendment. He has done everything he can, said Wallace, to undercut the media, to try and delegitimize it. And I think his purpose is clear, to raise doubts when we report critically about him that we can be trusted. The president's attacks have done some damage, said Wallace, citing polls reflecting the eroded lack of confidence in our free press. Chris Wallace is now the last man standing at Fox, at least when it comes to speaking truth about power. Gone, of course, is midday anchor Shepard Smith, who also spoke recently, saying, Intimidation and vilification of the press is now a global phenomenon. We don't have to look far for evidence of that. When the waters are muddy, the lies have it. For the first time in 20 years, Democrats and Republicans in the House agreed to put tax dollars into researching gun violence. Republicans under NRA pressure have consistently opposed this research, even banned federal agencies from publicly speaking negatively about guns. But the NRA has weakened, and new pressure has emerged the day the kids at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High in Florida grew up. In the days since, their March for Our Lives movement and shifting public opinion have made a difference. Twenty years after Sandy Hook, one year for each person who died in that gun massacre, an important gun bill has passed the House. The Republican Senate won't pass it, and Trump wouldn't sign it. But for the first time in two decades, we have bipartisan agreement about addressing gun violence and gun safety, addressing it for what it is, a public health crisis. The Vatican says it will abolish something called pontifical secrecy. Pontifical secrecy is a policy that often protected priests from criminal punishment by governments, often used to shield priests from sexual abuse charges. Removing pontifical secrets allows the church, but does not require it, to report abusive priests to the police or other government officials. Critics say it's a good move, but not enough, saying the church officials should be required by church policy to report claims of abuse or any criminal activity. A whistleblower who works as an investment manager has told the IRS that the Mormon church has a $100 billion slush fund that's made up of money intended for charity. The whistleblower's letter accuses church leaders of misleading its members and possibly violating federal tax rules. And the letter says the church has used its tax-exempt donations to even prop up two businesses. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has no comment. Boeing is suspending production of its 737 MAX. Although no one at Boeing is being laid off yet, tens of thousands of jobs there are on the line. But the suspension of manufacturing will hit hundreds of parts companies, including a company in Wichita that counts on Boeing for half of its business. Spirit Aerosystems' pockets are not as deep as Boeing's, and it cannot wait this long. Boeing was counting on the 737 MAX for one-third of its 2020 income. Now production is suspended indefinitely. Boeing says it doesn't know when or if the plane will ever be declared safe by the FAA. The 737 MAX was grounded nine months ago after two crashes that killed nearly 350 people. Christmas 2019 and weed in space in the final segment after this. Thank you again for your support throughout this challenging year. If you'd like to contribute to this effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through that website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up or ad blockers to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and helpful. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, however you do it, thank you. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas. Sure, 5G sounds like a good thing until whatever you had planned gets rained out. The recent international deal that dictates how tech companies should roll out 5G technology could very well screw up our weather forecasting. The World Meteorological Association, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NASA, and the U.S. Navy are all concerned that 5G equipment in the 24-gig frequency band could interfere with the satellites that gather data for forecasting. 
more than three-fourths of the data now being gathered would go away. Back in March, the FCC auctioned off those satellite frequencies for about $2 billion, and U.S. negotiators are largely to blame for the likely overlap in that frequency range. Weed in space. A SpaceX Dragon capsule docked with the International Space Station this week with nearly three tons of cargo. Among that cargo was coffee and cannabis. A number of plant cultures were sent up to watch for genetic mutation, coffee and hemp plants among them. Hemp can be used for making rope, clothing, for leaching dangerous heavy metals out of soil, and for its apparently medicinal CBD. This is the legal stuff with very low levels of THC, the compound in weed that produces the high. The astronauts are high enough already. In the Windy City, people can now smoke weed on their back porches or in their backyards without getting arrested, so say the city's mayor and interim police chief. Illinois state law does prohibit outdoor weed use, but the Chicago PD won't be busting anyone for it, according to a statement of clarification last week from City Hall. Quoting that statement, Writing this city's generation-old wrongs and overturning the unjust cannabis enforcement laws of our past has been at the heart of our efforts since day one. A new study claims that CBD, sold almost everywhere now in everything from food and drink to shampoos and lotions, could lead to a positive read for marijuana in a drug test, CBD. The study in the journal Analytical Toxicology showed that especially the vaping of CBD can produce a positive marijuana test result. This is news because researchers at the University of Pittsburgh have been developing a kind of breathalyzer for marijuana intoxication. The study found that CBD users test positive on that device, and it could cost them their jobs or their entire careers. The study shows that two out of six people who vape CBD test positive for marijuana on urine tests. The toxicologists are now studying whether cumulative exposure to CBD can make a person even more likely to test positive. We learned this past week that more Americans are dying at home these days instead of in hospitals. This is the first we've seen of that in more than 50 years. The gap has been continually closing. Now just under 30% of natural deaths occur in hospitals, while just over 30% now die their natural deaths in their homes. Americans have changed their views about the best way and place to die. More people have decided they don't want to pass away under fluorescent lights in hospitals hooked up to feeding tubes and ventilators. Plus, hospitals are under pressure from the government not to keep Medicare patients for long periods. About 45% of older people have already prepared advanced directives to specify what effort should or should not be made to keep them technically alive. Experts say families should have this uncomfortable discussion but they also say that caring for the dying at home is an overwhelming responsibility for non-professionals and a tremendous strain on families. Well over 1,300 Americans have already died from this year's flu strain, and more than 4,000 new cases were confirmed last week. The flu season is now in full swing, striking down more than 2.5 million people. 23,000 went to the hospital, and as I said, 1,300 of them died. Nearly all of this year's viruses are responding to the FDA-approved antiviral drugs for influenza. Shots and hand-washing are still the best preventive measures. Nearly 4 million letters went out from the IRS three years ago, advising people they would pay a fine for not carrying health insurance. So the IRS offered in this letter several possible ways to overcome that. Well, as it turns out, this bureaucratic exercise saved some lives. Three economists at the Treasury Department put together a report showing that the mass mailing increased the number of health insurance signups, increased them by a lot. And these economists have calculated that for every 1,648 people who got that form letter, one life was saved. Extrapolated to 3.9 million letters, that's some 700 lives saved by this letter. Their study stumbled upon something that had never been studied before, and that is how many lives are saved by health care coverage, settling a question that's been hotly debated by politicians in recent years. One simple bureaucratic trick, that letter, saved lives. Unfortunately, in December 2017, the Republican Congress did away with that fine for not having health insurance. That means no more letters. This life-saving exercise has ended. The Trump administration has cut back on advertising for what it calls Obamacare. The number of people uninsured is rising once again.
and yesterday. An appeals court ruled the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate is unconstitutional. The mandate originally required Americans to have health insurance or pay a penalty through their taxes. Congress killed that penalty last year, however, and without a tax element, the government no longer has the authority to require everyone to be insured. That's the ruling from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which has now sent the case back down to a lower court to consider whether any part of Obamacare is still legal. Now, yesterday's ruling has no immediate effect on Americans, but it again throws health care into chaos just ahead of the 2020 election. Hoping to save more lives, the FCC has approved 988 as a new suicide prevention hotline number. That number is not in use yet. For now, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline remains at 800-273-TALK. After a brutal social media bashing, the Hallmark Channel has reversed its decision to ban five ads that included a lesbian couple. The ads are for an online wedding planner called Zola. Hallmark rejected the ads as controversial after a right-wing group that targets media threatened a boycott of the channel in its biggest season of the year. Hallmark got an earful about its decision from the likes of Ellen DeGeneres and Pete Buttigieg. LGBTQ advocates and Saturday Night Live blasted the Hallmark Channel for its decision, and by Sunday night, it had reversed its ban and apologized rather profusely. The conservative group called One Million Moms put the heat on the Highlights magazine for children for featuring a same-sex couple in its pages two years ago. The group had earlier pressured Fox Entertainment TV to drop a show called Lucifer, calling it anti-Christian. You arrested me. You really arrested me. Actress Sally Field was arrested over the weekend at a climate change protest in D.C. Field was part of Jane Fonda's Fire Drill Fridays campaign to demand that the U.S. transition from fossil fuels to clean renewables. The 81-year-old Jane Fonda has been arrested several times at these events, along with Ted Danson, Diane Lane, and Sam Waterston. Fields, who won a Kennedy Center honor last week at the age of 73, smiled as she held up her hands for the arresting officer's zip tie. We lost actor Danny Aiello this past week in a hospital in New Jersey after a sudden illness with complications. Aiello's film career began in the 1970s with a walk-on part in The Godfather Part II. He also had roles in Once Upon a Time in America, The Purple Rose of Cairo, and Moonstruck. But he got an Oscar nod for his role in Spike Lee's 1989 film Do the Right Thing. Danny Aiello was 86. Dwayne Johnson and Jack Black struck gold in Jumanji The Next Level. That is the number one movie this week with more than $60 million in ticket sales. After three weeks at the top, Frozen 2 fell to second place with just under $20 million. Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers brought in a sad $3.5 million in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Clint Eastwood's Richard Jewell sold just $5 million in tickets. For all the movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com you might need to disable your pop-up blocker to see that Fandango link. The biggest mouth in the world is not who you might expect. The biggest documented mouth belongs to 14-year-old Isaac Johnson of Bloomington, Minnesota, whose mouth opening has been measured at an astonishing 3.67 inches. That beats the previous record measured on a German man who couldn't quite do three and a half. Christmas 2019. It only took 25 years, but Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You has, for the first time, become the top song on the Billboard Singles Chart. It was the most streamed song in America last week, with more than 45 million plays, on top of the 35 million plays the week before, in an unexplained mania that actually began on Halloween of this year. The song has gotten bigger every year. Last year, streamed 185 million times. This year's numbers, for whatever reason, after 25 years, are expected to be much bigger. Christmas sweaters have gotten raunchier in recent years. As the Washington Post puts it, if the newest wave of holiday sweaters has anything to say about Christmas, it's that December is a 31-day-long kegger, and Mrs. Claus should probably consult a divorce attorney. In the beginning, there were just Christmas sweaters. Thanks to movies like Bridget Jones' Diary and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, ugly Christmas sweaters were the new rage. 
America's fascination with ugly Christmas sweaters has since morphed into tributes to drinking and fornicating with abandon. On some, Santa says he does it for the hose or promises to deliver a big package. Or perhaps he's spelling out Merry Christmas in the snow using a stream of urine. One sweater with reindeer antlers proclaims, Horny! And then there's the one where a stripper dances on the North Pole while Santa showers her with paper money. Quoting one Christmas sweater aficionado, it's kind of become like the second Halloween. At a New Jersey dairy farm, the cows are wearing Christmas sweaters. The Lodge Farm in the town of St. Savior, with help from the tourist group Visit New Jersey, outfitted five cows with hand-knitted, brightly colored Christmas sweaters. The cows' names are Carol, Holly, Mary, Noel, and Mariah Derry. Farm spokeswoman Becky Howes loves Christmas, quoting her, If I had it my way, we'd play Christmas carols from October. So a cow, a donkey, and a camel walk into a nativity scene. In Goddard, Kansas, the odd trio, apparently escaped from a nearby wildlife park, were found walking down the road together recently. And now, this Saturday, the cow, the donkey, and the camel are the celebrity guests at a local nativity scene in a park that's normally closed this time of year but has reopened for just this event. That's not a garland. In Australia, a couple arrived home from work to find the birds on their balcony were acting unusually distressed. Inside, they found a decoration on their tree they hadn't put there. It was a 10-foot-long python. After the initial shock wore off, the couple admired the beauty of the snake and just left it alone until it left on its own. Quoting the woman, You don't really expect to see a snake in your Christmas tree. Even vacuum-sealed bags cannot contain a strong marijuana smell, at least not if you're a police dog. At Nashville International Airport on Monday, the dog sniffed out luggage that contained what appeared to be wrapped Christmas gifts. When police spotted the owner, he allowed them to search his bags, and inside they found vacuum-sealed bags of weed weighing a total of 84 pounds. The man, just arrived from Seattle, has been arrested. A lot of people don't like fruitcake, even if it's fresh. In Tecumseh, Michigan, the Ford family has one that's 141 years old. Fidelia Ford's great-great-granddaughter says the cake was baked in 1878 and that her great-great-grandmother died before the cake could be eaten. Through the years, the family has kept that fruitcake and passed it down through the generations, ever since stored in an antique glass dish. That Ford family fruitcake, however, is not the oldest in the world. On display at a food museum in Switzerland is a fruitcake that was baked in ancient Egypt 4,176 years ago. This is the time of year when people seek and find and offer others redemption. In Georgia, a man felt so badly about breaking the law, he called police three times to confess. It started at 5 a.m. last Friday when 29-year-old Quint Lankford called the Thomas County, Georgia Sheriff's Office to confess that he had stolen a car and that he was about 12 miles away in the smaller town of Boston, Georgia. A police officer in that town went looking for the Chevy Impala the man said he had stolen, but the cop could not find either the car or Quint Lankford. Lankford called one more time to confess and then called again later to say he'd broken into a convenience store and was drinking some of its beer. That is where police finally caught up with him and later found that stolen car back in Thomasville. Quoting the officer, he wanted to confess. He called three times. In Albuquerque, an 84-year-old woman tried to call a medical supply store to get a walker, but she misdialed by one digit and got the local district attorney instead. He wasn't in. But still confused, the woman left a voicemail explaining she needed a new walker. When the DA found the message, he did not ignore it. He did not call Bernice Weems to tell her that she had gotten the wrong number. He got her the walker. Bernice can now go to her son's wedding in Denver. As she told the local TV reporter, it's been a long, long time since I felt that good. A waitress at an IHOP in New Jersey served a party of about a dozen people, and they left a tip. One of the diners proposed to the others they leave the waitress a big tip. His friends were all in. They're talking about doing this again next year. They left the waitress a tip of $1,200.
at a secret Santa in Alabama has paid off $70,000 in layaway purchases at a Walmart. In Anniston, Alabama, someone paid off another 45000 in layaway purchases. And in nearby Oxford, Alabama, someone paid off another twenty-five grand. They appear to be three separate secret Santas. And it isn't just Alabama. This happens every Christmas all over the country. Quoting one of this year's recipients, how can I show someone that type of love? Our highway spill of the week involved no overturned trucks. Crates of grapefruit burst open while riding a flatbed truck on the Florida Turnpike. It held up traffic for 10 minutes. No one was injured in the grapefruit spill, but it took four hours to pick up all the grapefruits. The great Florida grapefruit spill occurred, of course, in Orange County. Why did the alligator cross the road in Montreal, Canada? To get to a Tim Hortons for donuts, eh? We've gotten used to alligator sightings increasingly farther north in the U.S., now Canada. So unfamiliar are Canadians with gators, at first, police there mistakenly reported it as a crocodile. After a while, it was returned to a local exotic animal show. If you step on something icky on the beach in Galveston, Texas, it might not be a jellyfish. Galveston City Council has voted down a proposal to require horseback riders on the beach to pick up their horses' droppings. Horse lovers argued that horse manure is pretty much non-toxic. Quoting one, it's really the only feces I would touch with my hands. Other animal owners are required by city code to pick up after their animals, but horse owners are exempt. Apparently it'll stay that way, despite the advice of city staff. And even though one beachgoer brought the council evidence in the form of a bag of horse manure. And finally, Orlando Henderson's second biggest mistake was the Facebook photo of himself on the floor, surrounded by cash and waving more cash in his hands. But there were pictures also of Orlando with multiple extravagant purchases, which was weird because Orlando didn't have a high-paying job. Orlando did, however, work at a Wells Fargo bank in Charlottesville, North Carolina. Past tense. The feds say the 29-year-old Henderson took cash from customer deposits at least 18 times this year and then rigged the books to cover it up. He's accused of stealing over $88,000 this year. Although he will likely ride to prison in an even sturdier vehicle, the feds caught up with this North Carolina man in San Diego in his brand-new Mercedes. I'm Boris Burbank. Thanks for listening and donating. And happy holidays to all and a happy new year. I'll be back January 9th with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.